I am here with an attorney, activist, and community organizer who is an out and proud member of the disability and LGBTQ plus communities. They began their own law practice at the law office of Shane M. Newmeyer, Disability Justice Law, which focuses on disability youth and transgender rights. Their passion on the issue of ending abuse and neglect of youth with disabilities in schools and treatment facilities stem from their own experiences with involuntary medical treatment and bullying and led them to go to law school. Ever since, they pursued their goal of using legal advocacy to address these problems of abuse. Welcome, Shane Newmeyer. Thank you for having me um, and good to see you. Shane Newmeyer, what compelled you to start your own law practice? Well, it became the best way to do the work that I went to law school to do. Um, when I graduated in 2012, because of the Great Recession, there were basically no jobs. I bounced around. I was underemployed, unemployed, finally got employment that was full time, but it didn't really work out because they weren't really on board with me and I dealt with some workplace bullying. So I decided after everything I'd seen, I couldn't be any worse with my own boss as I'd already experienced. Uh, and plus it would give me the freedom to go in my own direction and focus on the things that I was passionate about. So I decided what the hell, I um, went off on my own and have been doing so ever since. Awesome. So what business structure did you choose and why? I just went for a basic sole proprietorship. Um, part of it was I, uh, as one of my teachers put it way back in the day, I am like a black hole for paperwork. So bureaucracy and administrative stuff, paperwork does not work well with me. So just having the one form down at City Hall to write, um, to fill out and turn in with $35 or something was what, what made the most sense to me. Um, I also, um, right now, I found some of the other options. I talked it over with a couple of people, and they said for the price of um, the other options, like a an LLC, limited liability corporation, or a professional corporation, which costs about five hundred dollars each year, I didn't have, or and I really, frankly, still don't have all that many assets to protect from liability, which is the purpose of these other structures. So. Um, it didn't make sense to, to pay that much up front when I didn't have all that much um, that it would benefit me. Um, so I decided to just go the simple route and have not seen any reason I need to change that. So basically it was just a matter of registering your law firm, your business, and nothing really more because you didn't have anything to protect at the time or even now. Yeah. Um, I'm working out of an office share at this point, like a co-working space, um, furniture is theirs. Um, I have probably, my, my, my most 
um, importance belongings are my cats, and predators aren't going to come after those, so I'm good. <laughs> awesome. Solo entrepreneurship. As you said, you're a sole, uh, sole proprietor. So yeah. solo entrepreneurship is often looked down upon by the greater business community. So what has being a solo entrepreneur, a solo proprietorship, um, done for you that a process-oriented business could never achieve? Mostly it's um, just being able to make my own decisions and not um, seek permission from or seek forgiveness from other people when I do things my own way, which is sometimes frustrating to other people. And also, again, with trying to form a board and get... Uh, get um, anything else paperwork um, oriented for say 501c3 um, establishment that's basically having time not to do deal with the hassle um, is helpful um, I've thought about it mostly for the purposes of eventual student loan forgiveness but at this point I don't have the um, how to say, the spoons, as we'd say, in disability community or the resources time-wise to make that work and still be able to do all the other stuff I need to do, legal and otherwise. Understandable. I can definitely relate. And it's a perk to be able to make your own decisions. It, it means that you get to move, maneuver faster. Exactly. Whereas had, yeah, whereas you had to run it by people, even if you had one other partner, it would like slow down uh, every little bit of the decision-making process. Yeah, and often my style is uh, st something needs to be done now. How do I do it? Um, flying by the seat of my pants. I really often can't get that um, that decision-making uh, that yes or no from somebody else because I need to make a decision now and because either it's an emergency or I put it off to the last minute as I tend to do. So that freedom and flexibility is essential for how I work. How did you fund your startup? Um, lots and lots of credit card debt, which I am still getting my way out of. Um, I applied for a few branch type things toward the beginning, no such luck. I talked um, to a few local organizations about options and Unfortunately, I didn't qualify for a loan, so I decided at a certain point it was more important to just start going, and unfortunately, that required taking on debt, um, but thankfully, I've been able to at least make payments on that, and I'm looking forward to um, when the big first case um, gets a settlement, which is not as kind of... Um, it, it, it will actually happen rather than being a far-off dream, let's say that, um, based on where I am now. But I will not say it's easy. I'm not going to say it's something everybody can do, but it was the option available to me. So I went that direction for better and for worse. So how did that process look like? Um, did you already have good credit to apply for lines of credit, or did you have, like, starting out with zero credit? Um, how did that go? I had pretty good credit at the time, which definitely helped. Um, I had a little bit of debt, but not like nearly, um, so 
don't think that would have been a, a red flag. Um, since then, I can't say the same, but I'm working way, my way back up. Um, but at the time, I had the uh, both the good credit and the access to credit that um, allowed that to be the case. Which is important, yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give to those seeking funding for their business ventures? Especially if you have more time than I was looking at at, at the time. Um, I would research grants. I would talk to your local small business development council, um, look around, for instance, at the local library for like meetings about funding your own business. Often uh, libraries and similar community centers will have these events time to time. Um, talk to any personal connections you might know who have either experienced themselves starting a business um, or they might know people who could help you out. Um, given that this is the 21st century, you can also go online and either start a short-term crowdfund to say, I need um, $5,000 to register a business and pay the first few months of office rent and get a couple of pieces of equipment uh, and get business cards, the basics, or you can start a Patreon page um, to get monthly subscribers over time and say, for instance, you were able to pay for the cost of your office rent every month. That's a big chunk of overhead right there that you just have taken care of for the next, for the foreseeable future. So those are some options um, that people can pursue. And I'm sure that people who are smarter and better at this than me would have a bunch of others, but those are the things I'm aware of and or have tried to various extents. Okay. And I, I know you have a Patreon. Um, when you were taking on the debt through credit cards, did you try any of those avenues that you just suggested? Yes, I did. Um, I went to a few events um, around where I was living at the time to learn some, some things about how to get funding and how to start up. I think I took more from it about the startup process that I was able to use funding-wise, especially because I was moving to a new location at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I also did, I have crowdfunded for a certain specific uh, project or um, case a couple of times. I try not to do that too much, um, just, you know, you hear what's called donor fatigue, where you see five crowdfunds are coming across your feed every day and you're like, forget it. So I try not to do it that often. Um, I do have a Patreon page and will occasionally send it, the link around again um, and pick up a couple of people, for instance, uh, as subscribers. And I, again, I did apply for a couple of grants. Unfortunately, it hasn't worked out so much. and if and when I'm able to work with an actual grant writer, I'm hoping to continue to go that avenue. You basically did these steps along the process of you starting up. Like you didn't yeah. wait to learn it. You learned as you went, you learned as you go. Yeah, which is how I tend to do things in general. Um, there's definitely upsides to that. And I, it's a very quick form of learning. Uh, there's downsides of uh, you will, certainly make mistakes you wouldn't if you were more careful and planned. But um, how I end up 
doing the best is I just say, okay, no time to think, just start going and see what happens. Well, I hear that's the best way because in business, you have to take action. So people who procrastinate too much by learning way like more than they need to at the beginning, it slows them down in the long run. At least that's what I hear. So the way you did it is technically suggested by gu gurus. Um, I am, uh, I'm sure you, you know more about this than I do. I just know that I have the tendency to procrastinate. So I remember a point at which I consciously told myself, just like, buy the domain name, do it now. Yeah. Step and do something and get the momentum to keep moving rather than sit around. What do I do? Which thing do I pick? Um, so that, that it, even the first part of just doing something tiny to get momentum going was helpful to not get into the doubt and um, overwhelm the spiral. Exactly. So how does this business intersect with your passion of disability advocacy? Um, I really get to focus on it, uh, basically, and do it in the way that I want, which is just as crucial. Um, I can say, for instance, you know, I get a call from somebody um, late in the day or a message from somebody at midnight about something that's going to happen tomorrow or a meeting in the local area, and I can decide I just want to go to that and advocate and figure out how to do it at the time. Uh, and I don't have to ask for approval. I can shape my approach and do it. Um, and that's exhilarating. And I can also work on the systemic projects I want to and evaluate the risks of doing so for myself uh, rather than saying, oh, we need to talk to this board or we need to talk to state agencies we work with or anything else. I can decide this will be good for the overall pro the overall aim and I can do it and those are the two pieces that are crucial and so let's go. What do you think is the most prevalent obstacle people with a disability face as entrepreneurs? Um, various types of ableism basically. Uh, it, it'll start with the fact that many of us will not be taught things about how to uh, how to run a business, the skills you need even sometimes to be an employee, let alone an employer or self-employed. Um, sometimes we won't even be expected to work. Um, we will also, often disabled people and their families are poor generationally or otherwise um, because of the difficulties that um, come with being disabled. If you have multiple generations of disabled people, um, struggling to make make do um, with already limited resources, or um, the that that poverty can lead to disabilities. The most obvious example being lead paint, but there's other situations where you can become disabled because of poverty, uh, and poverty, of course, leads to less access to capital and the connections that have wealth. Uh, so those systemic conditions um, really impact somebody's ability to start out. Plus, it, once you get into the work world even, people will not always give you the chances that you'd like to have or that they might give somebody else, even so much as you know attention at a cocktail mixer because you're disabled, either because 
leader like me and you stand out like a sore thumb and people have unexamined biases or you just look weird or you seem weird and they don't know what to do with that and you don't fit into professional cultures so you miss out because you get excluded for one reason or another uh, so I would say that ableism is the biggest barrier people will face. Even once you're in the door, people judge you and don't. Oh yeah. Okay. Like um, how, how have you how have you navigated that? Um, usually, <laughs> um, I have. Let's see. Usually, I pushed basically more whether it's. No, with employers, when I was still working, I would say, no, I want to do litigation, I can do it. And finally, when they said no, I went off on my own. So these days, you know, I'll get people, I'll get security guards who will try to not let me out of the psychiatric ward when I'm doing a client, or who will shoo me out of the attorney area of the courtroom when I'm in a suit. And I will just be like, oh, no, I belong here. And um, I will have to basically prove that I, I do belong there with my bar card or with a colleague saying, yeah, they're with me. Um, it's, uh, it's, and a lot of it, honestly, those are the examples I use because I can point to them. I know why that particular thing happened. With a lot of things, you know, okay, I've done 25, 50 job interviews and I'm not getting hired. I wonder what that's, that is since I, you know, I know I'm not a bad interviewer. I know I'm not a bad writer for the writing sample. What's going on? Or, huh, I am not getting any of these opportunities at a given workplace and all these people who don't look like me or who fit in better are, I wonder why. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be enough for a lawsuit, almost certainly, but you know that something's up because there's no other explanation for it. And you do kind of go over, okay, did I do this wrong? Did I do that wrong? And when you, every time, not every time, God, but a lot of the time you can say, you know, I did as well as anyone could be expected to be, or I made a couple of mistakes that shouldn't have, like I would not, if in the opposite position, have held that against anybody else, and you have instance after instance of that, you can guess what's up. Yeah. As an entrepreneur, though, you found that standing up for yourself, or even when that falters, uh, having a colleague vouch for you, that helps you navigate the system that's um, not really uh, privy to including people with disabilities? Yeah, um, those have been things that have helped. Um, at, at some point, I'm, wish, I'm hoping that I will be well-known um, well enough, and I know that sounds egotistical. On the other hand, I'm very recognizable. Hope, I hope eventually people will at least know that, who I am enough that that won't happen, if only because they've seen me around enough. But right now, that's, those are a couple of things I relied on. That's a good strategy. I think that applies to more people who are affected across the board by different biases but certainly uh, is magnified for people with disabilities. Yeah, and one good thing about being distinctive is that can work in your favor as long as you don't um, 
become a pariah or anything, but as long as you're generally liked and respected, eventually the fact that you stick out can be an advantage rather than taking away from your um, credibility or reputation. Uh, thank you for that advice. Um, so what was your life like before and after becoming a business owner? Uh, well, there's a lot more before than after. Um, I went to law school in um, 2009-2012 uh, at Suffolk University Law School out in Boston. Um, and then I bounced around a lot for work. I was in Oregon. I was in um, New York. I was in Massachusetts. I took the bar for all three. I had a very aborted attempt to work in D.C. Um, that was a few months, didn't take the bar there. Um, right before I was working for myself, I was working for a nonprofit out in New York State, but in terms of both work style and kind of ideal, uh, ideology or framework, whatever you want to call it, it was not a good fit. Um, and I was, um, first it started as good faith attempts to educate them about disability stuff and about the community's priorities. And then it was basically, uh, how to say, testing the limits. How far can I get before I was fired? I was not fired. I quit and went out on my own in late 2017. And since then have been mostly doing civil commitment defense for the public defender system out here as a contractor. So somebody is in a hospital um, against their will, um, and I will go and defend them at trial to make sure they can get out, or at least attempt to. Um, I've also gotten to take a couple of cases in um, what I'm really passionate about is about institutional abuse at treatment facilities, schools, and the like. Um, and those are slowly moving forward. And I've also, especially within the disabled community locally, I've done a few one-off things, for instance, doing a research project and a write-up for somebody about their rights to a service animal in housing, or going to advocate um, against involuntary medical leave for a student at a local college, um, writing, a movie writing a letter to a movie theater about their obligations to accommodate somebody with a disability, so little projects here and there that come up and help to fund um, the day-to-day -day operations, you know, $500 right there, that's a month's worth of office rent, and also helps build a, a reputation within the dis disabled community in the area, which is just, it's just as important, if not more so, than building a network within the disability advocacy community because the important thing is that the people served know that you're good and know that you work for them, not just another able person saying, well, this is what would be good for you, or this is the safest route, but saying, okay, for me, where you are knowing that you want to do this, that, or the other, and this is going to be harder as a disabled person, or this is what you have to watch out for, and having that insider perspective and gaining gaining that respect by giving the respect that's owed to, to our community uh, will be very helpful, or so I'd like to think, in having a good reputation with the client base. 
And it's important for clients to even know you exist because like you yeah. mentioned, they might just assume, oh, it's a lawyer. They probably don't understand me because they probably are able and not disabled, but like you are a part of the community. So you serve that niche uh, in a way that no one else can who, you know, is outside of that community. I'd like to think that that, that, that that's the case. Um, and I do, I have received feedback to that effect that it's, uh, once in a while I'll get somebody who says, mm, you're a lawyer, but often it, it will be a pleasant surprise to people who are not expecting um, me. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles and eventually came over to Massachusetts for college and law school. Wow, what made you go from California to Massachusetts? A few things. First of all, my family and I function best with at least several hundred, if not several thousand miles between us. Um, I actually like cold country, and in the heat of summer right now, I'm like, what is this Massachusetts? I came here for snow, not just 100 degrees stuff. Um, <laughs> climate change and I are not friends. Um, the other thing is I had a very close friend uh, living in upstate New York when I first applied to college and I wanted to be closer to said friend. Um, what do you know, that friendship fell apart within months of me coming out here. Um, but I did build up a community around here and by the time that I had wandered around the country again, I was like, I'll come back to my, my old stomping ground where I feel at home now and where a bunch of people know me by that point. Okay. What inspired you to think about entrepreneurship? Um, as I've suggested, it was kind of a last resort, but it was also helped by the fact that my dad's been self-employed um, for my entire life um, and most of his career. So I known it was possible even with um, some of the characteristics we share around ADHD and executive functioning. Um, so I'm like, if he can do it and it's not been anywhere close to a total disaster, I have a good shot. Having that like personal role model, like within your own family to look up to, to know that that's possible, that, that really helped you? Yeah. It, basically to know that it was an option, um, even with some of the things that I knew would be challenging. That's good to anticipate the challenge and know that it can be overcame. Yeah. Yeah. What was the most difficult challenge you have personally faced as a business owner? All the, all the administrative stuff, all the paperwork, all the things of, you know, you have 20 little tasks and they all need to be done. They are tiny, but any one of them you drop is going to be a problem. Um, at least you will have to pay more money for it, possibly worse and keeping up with everything, especially without being able to afford an assistant that um, can do all these things. I have somebody who's helping for five hours a week, but anything more than that, I couldn't pay fairly enough. And it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling cycle, as in not being able to either cut out these small projects and delegate them, or falling behind on them makes it harder to make more money. And so getting out of that cycle is my one of my current biggest challenges.
Oh, wow. I'm going to be facing uh, that challenge myself eventually. Because I, I too, use the executive function because of my ADD. But I'm, yeah. the, I'm the inattentive type, not the hyperactive. Yeah. yeah, but we share that in common. And that's definitely a hurdle I can relate. Uh, I am sorry you also have to deal with that. It's... <laughs> It's one of the most annoying parts in my in my life of being disabled. It's like mm -hmm. it, it's that one of the challenges, uh, I guess, mentally or thought wise, is just a, a very regular self criticism tendency. And the like one of the things that comes up a lot is I know I can do well. I graduated law school. I passed three bars for for Christ's sake, like, how can I not do the simple little thing? And intellectually, I know that they're not the same, but I, it's always a matter of having to talk myself up to, okay, you can do this. It's one piece of paper. What's your problem? But also not being so hard on myself that I freeze up and can't do anything. Hmm. Um. Is one of the things, because I know what makes me procrastinate is when I do go ahead and do the paperwork, um, I always find like I mess something up. Oh, and before, yeah. Before I do that paperwork, I'm always reminded of past instances. So I, I think to myself, well, this is really going to take me twice or three times longer. And then I put it off because, oh, it's going to take me twice or three times longer. It, do you have the same problem or is it different? Um, I think it's mostly just if there's 20 tasks and all of them are grabbing at my attention, even starting on the first one, which I know would help, like to get momentum and be able to decide the next one, even that is really hard because there are so many options and my brain jumps between them that going, getting going um, is a challenge. Um, I'm also the type who, once I start something, I'm more likely to screw it up and say, you know, you know, uh, the person, the person accepting this paper can figure out what I mean. And then they'll be like, oh no, you, you filled it out this way instead of that way. And it'll get kicked back to me. And another five weeks passes of trying to figure out how to start again. My thing is more discouragement. Yours is, it sounds like more overwhelm. Like you get yeah. overwhelmed. Okay. So the way that you push through that and, and conquer that, is it just by like doing it? Like how, how do you handle that? Eventually I can get to a point where I can be like, okay, just whatever you have to do, flip a coin, roll a dice, put a, your finger down on the to-do list, that's what you're doing first. Or just click open an email and that's the one you're doing first. Um, so eventually I can force myself to make a decision and get the momentum to start going. And at least that will take me through a few tasks before I'm kind of like, wait, there are so many more, oh God. And I have to get going again that way. So um, what investment plans do you have in store for you or your business? At this point, basically, I have a couple of savings accounts and one for eventually having a house and one for, you know, taxes and um, business related emergencies and any money I receive through any crowd funds for a specific purpose. But beyond that, I don't have a much in the way of planning. 
Um, so uh, basically, I have I, I have my funds in my checking account, which are I have to treat in a rather hand-to-mouth fashion, and then I have a couple of accounts that are savings, and I try to forget those exist so I don't use them up too. That way your savings is actually savings because you try to forget about it so it stays a saving. Yeah. That's kind of the extent of my planning. <laughs> well, you mentioned a house. Um, is that just for yourself or did you plan on getting a property as well uh, to cash flow as an investment or were you just looking at a house for yourself? I just like a house for myself, um, if nothing else, to have a separate workspace and also so the cats have more area to roam in and not be territorial over. And speaking of investments, what barrier to investing do you think people with disabilities uniquely face? Uniquely, I'm not sure of, but given that we tend to have very little in the way of income, whether because many of us live on SSI or SSDI or um, because we don't come from much wealth or because we're constantly getting medical bills. A lot of us just don't have the extra money to set aside. And speaking of SSI and, and the like, how does that work when you hit that income wall, even before you make investments? Um, because I know some people personally, that they can only have a threshold of income before they lose their benefits. Yeah. Um, and that? Uh, what was the last bit? Have you ran into that yourself or does that not apply to you? I have not had to deal with that because I have not yet, knock on wood, been in the position where I haven't been able to do work um, to the degree that I would qualify for SSI, SDI. But I do know that that happens to a lot of people, and um, it's a ridiculous system that basically punishes people for doing what they can um, that doesn't either fall into the nothing or everything category of working for a certain amount of time. Yeah, it seems to me that the cap is so low that it's like forced poverty. And anyone who wants to build themselves up, there's not like a, a gray area um, oh, yeah. where, you know what I mean? Like a gray area yeah. where they, they can have the leeway to succeed or fail. It's, yeah. Once you pass that threshold, you are on your own. Um, and that's pretty scary. Do you think that holds back a lot of people from becoming entrepreneurs within the disabled community? Um, I quite a few people. Um, I will not go into it that much, but there are people who find workarounds as far as, you know, they do small bits of things, especially around the community, you know, in, in cash or uh, they'll, they'll do speaking engagements and they'll get enough that it's under the reportable income amount, something like that. But I think it's a huge barrier beyond that and for the most part because it's such a poverty trap that doesn't consider individual circumstances. Yeah, exactly. And as far as um, the reported income, the only legal loophole that I've figured out um, for people who might be facing it would be to incorporate as an escort. But again, that goes back to that's assuming people have access to capital to incorporate as an S-corp to begin with. Yeah, 
and have the knowledge of how it works and have the assistance they might need to fill out the paperwork and understand it and get it in, all of that. So speaking of investments, uh, Bitcoin is partly currency, partly investment, depending on how you use it. Um, do you have an opinion about Bitcoin? I don't really, I, I haven't done enough research to really understand the ins and outs of it in order to have an opinion. Uh, so I, I, I basically, I'm kind of like, sure, it seems to work for some people, great. And that, that's kind of the extent of what I feel like I can say and, and not be talking out of my butt. Understandable. That's a, that's a wise way to answer that. In the future, though, do you think your business, your law firm, will ever accept cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin? It's, it's possible. I haven't run into a uh, situation where that came up, but if that's, for instance, if somebody needed short-term help or something like that, and that's what they had to pay, they could explain it to me, we could, we could talk about it, and there's a good chance I would say yes, given the individual circumstances. Um, but I, I honestly don't know enough to say yes or no, especially as a general matter, rather than as individual uh, clients and I coming to an agreement. What financially impacts your quality of life the most? Um, financially wise, it's just being in a lot of debt and not having the income beyond paying off that debt to the extent that would be comfortable. And between that and being a qualified public interest attorney where I'm not, um, let's just say if I was representing the hospitals on the civil commitment side, I would not have this concern, but I don't want to represent the hospitals. So doing the work I want to do means being financially crunched, especially in trying to, to come back from that initial debt investment to begin my business. So you're still in the process of your cash flow paying down the debt that you used to start your business. Yeah. And I'm hoping that, um, again, that first big case that is promising to settle out at some point here will um, just allow me to wipe that out in one go. But until then, it's kind of like, uh, make, the, make the payments every month and um, hope to have enough left over to eat twice a day, for instance. Even though that's a struggle, um, that has like helped you leverage in starting though. So would you do it different or would you do it exactly the same given the circumstances that that may have been your only way to get startup funding? I think what I would have done differently is start considering self-employment before it became okay, it's, it's this or nothing. Um, and to start going that earlier before it was a matter of desperation rather than a, a like a choice I had been pursuing simultaneously with other options. And that way I might have had more time to get grants, get a loan, something like that. Um, but that's uh, given that I did end up going um, kind of as obviously. I'm looking for the right phrase, sorry. Um, I did just kind of go into it saying, okay, it's do or die now, sink or swim. Then I 
had to do it this way, but if ever there's the next time, I know what I'll do. Good to know now that you've already done it the first time. And good yeah. to say to people who haven't done that yet, they, they know that maybe they should consider going on this path before they really committed to it, just in case this happens to be their path. Yeah. So they and always have that option open. Yeah, if you can plan for more options than one at once, then do so. If you can't, then do it, whatever you can. That's not that. People can go to Shane's website, disabilityjusticelaw.com. Shane is also on Facebook at Disability Justice Law. Lastly, be sure to support Shane through Patreon at Disability Justice Law. Thank you so much, Shane. Thank you. Have a great day. Have a good day, too. Bye.